You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth Chats. I'm speaking with two neuroscientists, the author of an ambitious new book, Journey of the Mind, How Thinking Emerged from Chaos. Ogi Ogas and Sai Gadam both received their PhDs in computational neuroscience from Boston University, where they design mathematical models of cognition. Uh, Ogi, Sai, welcome. I look forward to our conversation. We're very excited to be here. Thank you for having us on. You know, I suggest we explore Journey of the Mind in four parts. First is a very concise overview of your positions, your arguments, your claims, which are big ones. Uh, second, uh, a definition of key terms as you would define them, because you do it a little differently than others might. Third is an architecture of the book, so we can see this uh, flow, this evolutionary flow that is is the core of your of your approach. And then the fourth will be what I'll call challenges and implications, which I have some very specific uh, uh, questions to throw at you and see how you do. How does that sound? Sounds lovely. So let's start with an overview of your claims. They're big claims. So just give me a a quick reaction to each one, because we're going to discuss each in some depth later. So first, uh, you say you can approach why consciousness exists and how it works. Those are two massive claims are right there. How and why uh, and how might be harder than the first. That's right. So the approach that we're taking is, like you said, a little bit different. We want to retrace thinking on Earth, the entire development of thinking on Earth from the very first simplest minds to come into existence to the most sophisticated minds that exist today. So it's sort of an incremental approach at looking at how minds were built over time. So we start out with the simplest minds like archaea, bacteria, protozoa, and we continue on through invertebrates, vertebrates, up to the most sophisticated minds on the planet today, which is not the human brain. And by taking this approach, we want to look at how consciousness came into being. And this approach lets us look at each specific mental innovation, each specific physical innovation in minds that when put together, step-by-step lead to the emergence of consciousness. You you say that Journey of the Mind is the first book to offer a unified account of the mind that explains consciousness, language, self-awareness, and even civilization, and how these arose incrementally out of chaos, as you say. What is the unique part that enables this book to be the first to do Uh, that? So usually when researchers tackle the big questions about the mind, like consciousness, language, self-awareness, the personal self, they tackle it head on as an isolated problem. This gives rise to this notion of consciousness, for example, being a hard problem because it's separated out. Like consciousness is the hard stuff, but everything else presumably is the easy stuff. But we're saying that by looking at all the easy stuff, by seeing how the easiest of the easiest stuff came into being. And then looking at what each new piece came on top of those little pieces over time that we're building up to consciousness. It's a bottom-up approach as opposed to most others who take 
a top-down approach by trying to just tackle, for example, consciousness head on. So we're trying to look at how it came together as opposed to you know, just treating it like a specific standalone problem. And when you do this, it turns out you can get a lot more insight. What's unique is this unified edifice stands on top of the fundamental questions, which are considered easy questions. A lot of people try to tackle consciousness, the self, head on. This is not what uh, we did. We are, of course, relying on, we're standing on the sh shoulders of giants, one particular giant in particular. We'll get to that later. But what, what this enables us, the answering of the easy questions, is al it allows us to then build this edifice, get to the, the grand unified explanation. Then you go on from there and you talk about superminds that humans are not the most sophisticated minds on the planet. And uh, now, and perhaps even in the future, there might be higher forms of consciousness. We're going to get into it later, but give me that long vision. Our approach to the mind looks at minds. We have a, by taking the step-to-step -step approach, step-by-step -step approach, we can have a unified vision of what thinking is. So we can look at thinking in, say, a bacteria, even though it doesn't have any neurons, it has specific dynamics, specific physical activity that we can consider thinking. And by tracing how this physical activity has developed over time into invertebrate minds and invertebrate minds, and then this is key, passing out of biological minds, you know, now it's in silicon and in the air through just language itself and through all of the physical artifacts of human civilization, we can show there's a continuity that the underlying physical substrate is not the most important thing. That is, we usually focus, most neuroscientists focus on the neurons themselves, the specific brain structures. Those are very helpful. But if you want to really look at thinking in its most broad and understand how consciousness and language and what these, these mysterious forms of thinking actually are, you've got to take this very broad view of thinking that allows us to consider bacteria and robots in the same mathematical system, the same physical framework as more familiar minds, like the minds of mammals and, and, and reptiles and birds. This allows us to see a continuity that all minds are bound together in this rather simple conception of mental dynamics, of physical dynamics. And this allows us to say things like, for example, looking at the human supermind, looking at civilization as a kind of independent mind with its own po potential for consciousness. It's using the same math, the same physical principles that we might find in, say, for example, a protozoa. Just obviously more complex, but but that's that's the what you're saying is some combination. Of, of a civilization, or as some have said, the internet itself, which is, lends itself more to information, can itself in, in, in some real sense achieve this, a similar category of consciousness that we see in at least higher mammals and humans. That's the, that, that's the, the claim. Right, so because there is a continuity of the physical dynamics. We treat the internet and robots and other synthetic and artificial forms of human generated intelligence as a whole separate category. But we say, if you want to understand minds, and especially if you want to understand consciousness and self-awareness, then break down those barriers and come to understand that there are common physical principles that guide all of these forms of thinking, all of these forms of mind. Can your unified theory of mind, as you say, explain the mind's greatest mysteries? What are those mysteries? I'm not asking you to justify it now, but what are the mysteries 
that you claim to be able to solve with the unified theory of mind. And then you go further when you talk about the ultimate fate of all minds in the universe. So, so that's a big, those are two big wows. Uh, so ju just give me a sense of what those are, and then we'll see if it can be justified later. What is consciousness? What is the self? How, how are conscious, how does the experience of experience arise? And most importantly, who is the experience of? So these are the greatest mysteries. The second mystery is usually left out. But when we talk about the greatest mysteries, the consciousness self, these, these are the ones that come to mind first. Okay, well, I'm certainly intrigued. All of this is core, closer to truth. As you know, closer to truth has three big categories, uh, cosmos, which is universe, cosmology, consciousness, which is brain, mind, uh, all of these kinds of questions. And then we have a meaning category on ultimate purpose and, and philosophy of religion, things like that. Uh, so... Um, Looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I must say I'm something of a skeptic, a, a hopeful and open-minded skeptic, but uh, you know I'm going to be coming at this a, a little bit skeptically. All right, so now in part two, I just want simple definitions of terms that you've been, we've been using already, but uh, encapsulate them particularly in your uh, unique framework for them. So we'll start with mind. And I know what you say is is you like to define the mind by what it does, not what it is. That's right. The, perhaps the number one takeaway from undergoing this journey of the mind is this realization that the mind is activity. The word mind is an action noun, like dance or communication or, or game. The activity of the mind is thinking. But this often leads to trouble, is when you treat the mind like a thing rather than an activity. In fact, this has been a common source of misconceptions throughout the history of science, not just in psychology and the mind sciences. You know, physicists, chemists, biologists, physicists used to believe in, in something called um, uh, phlogiston. The idea that this was the source of combustion was a hidden substance, a hidden thing that was released uh, when it got hot enough and the phlogiston turned into flames. Now we know that combustion is a collective process. Biologists looked for Elan Vital. They thought there was a substance, a thing that was the source of life, the source of uh, living activity. But it turned out it was the collective activity of all the different physical mechanisms in an organism. And this has been the problem with consciousness, too, is that people are looking for that underlying thing that's producing consciousness, that substance, that energy, the thing that is consciousness or the mind. And it turns out, like these other problems that have been in physics and chemistry and biology. It's a collective activity. It's the activity, it's the dynamics of the mind that produce consciousness and thinking and language and all of the forms of mental activity that, that fascinate and intrigue us. Can I butt in and just add a simple definition of thinking and the mind? Because I think that is important uh, for what we're going to see later. A mind, according to us, uh, very simple. It takes sensory inputs from the world and transform those into behavioral outputs for the welfare of the body. That's it. And this is a, a very broad and permissive definition. Uh, it does not allow things like thermostats because the, the, this translation of inputs into outputs does not uh, help in the welfare of the body. But it does allow for biological minds and for self-driving cars as well. And we'll see why this definition being broad and permissive is important later on. Okay, well, that, that's a very important distinction. But from what I'm hearing, I don't immediately see a distinguishing between how you're defining mind and how you're defining consciousness. So let me put that to you 
in, in distinguishing between those two terms. Our definition of consciousness is, again, bottom up. It's based on the physical activity. So I think a lot of people approach consciousness subjectively. They, they say, okay, I feel I have this experience of consciousness. Let me analyze this. This is a top-down approach. We're looking at it as here are the underlying physical mechanisms that embody conscious experience. So explaining what those are, well, that's the whole purpose of the book. You need to go on a journey. There's a lot of incremental steps. It's sure. not possible to boil it down to a simple uh, sure. definition. And, and that I get. And that I get. Yeah. I'm still not getting, though, the, the distinction, distinction between mind and consciousness. Is consciousness a subset of mind as you've defined it? Consciousness is a form of mental dynamics. It's a form of thinking. So there's so many it, kinds of there's many kinds of thinking. There's many kinds of mental dynamics. Consciousness is just another form of mental dynamics, of which there are many in the mind. It's just another mental innovation, another physical development. It's not even the highest or most advanced or most sophisticated form of thinking in the mind, and it's nor is it one of the newest. Uh, that's not true either. So we kind of instinctively imagine that consciousness, our, our ability to be aware of our own awareness is, is the peak of thinking in the universe, but, but it's not. It's just another form of mental dynamics. What those mental dynamics actually are is the subject of the book. Okay, so, you, so, so mind is the broader category. Consciousness is a subset of mind. Uh, consciousness and- is a form of thinking. So there's many kinds of thinking in a mind. The consciousness is one form of thinking. It's one specific form of mental dynamics. The, the mind is where the activity that we call thinking happens. And consciousness is one subset of this. It is a specific kind of okay. constellation. Okay, well, that, that, that's clear. That's clear. So how, how do we deal? Do you distinguish between consciousness and the word awareness, self-awareness, self? These are other kinds of, of, uh, of um, uh, uh, terms that we all yes, use. Yes. And I'm just trying to see how you use those sure, terms sure. differentially. So this is one of the biggest revelations from going on the journey of the mind is that there's actually different forms of consciousness in uh, among the animal kingdom. Consciousness experienced by the other vertebrates, by fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, birds, is different than human consciousness because we have additional mental dynamics. So a lot of researchers and scientists sort of lump together consciousness and consciousness of consciousness, or more commonly called self-awareness. Our, our awareness of our own experience is unique to us because we have two sets of dynamics that interact. We'll get to that later, I'm sure, during this discussion. But our point here is that the consciousness of, say, a dog is fundamentally qualitatively, physically, and mathematically distinct from the consciousness that humans experience. Okay, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that later, but that you're saying the phenomenological experience of the dog, go, but that goes beyond the fact that the dog can smell, you know, tens of thousands of different uh, uh, aromas and, and, and we're very limited. That, that's a different experience. It's like, you know, what is it like to be a bat? The same kind of... So we'd say that the dog is conscious of the smells, but only humans are conscious of the fact that we're conscious of smells. We're aware of our awareness of smells. Dogs are simply aware of their smells. This might seem like nitpicking or like a philosophical no, that's difference. Not nitpicking. We'll get that's into right. why there's a physical and mathematical distinction between them. Right. So, so that so, distinction between awareness and self-awareness. Yes. 
right. A, 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 are you limiting that? You know, we'll get to it later, maybe to, to humans that only humans have that because that's. I think that's been proven to be there are animals that can recognize spots on their head and things like that. Right. So in the book, we talk about that's, for example, that specific test, the mirror test. And the point with the mirror test is they're only self-aware because they have an additional physical dynamic, such as a mirror. We have mirrors inside our mind. Humans have mirrors inside our mind. Animals need an external mirror to generate self-awareness. Okay, let's go through the architecture of the book to see this flow that you've been talking about to build up the different kinds of, of, of what you would call mind activities that lead to human consciousness and then, and then beyond. So in your book, you talk about four stages, uh, molecular minds, neuron minds, modular minds, and super minds. So let's take them one at a time. Give me some examples. We can't go through everything. Let's start with the first stage, uh, molecule minds. Uh, it, we, we, we do use these terms, but uh, I do want to uh, talk about how these terms correlate to what the, the, the kind of things these minds can perceive. So molecule minds can perceive uh, points. They're, they're very simple capabilities. They, uh, so examples are bacteria, archaea, the bits and bobs of molecular machinery. They can uh, navigate towards sunlight, uh, that's one example of a molecular mind, which its, its uh, thinking capabilities are limited to uh, very simple uh, patterns. And these are points, points in space. As you pointed out, Robert, we say there's four stages of mind, four distinct stages of thinking that have manifested on Earth. And the simplest, the first stage are the molecule minds. The molecule minds have thinking elements of molecules, individually identifiable molecules. So for example, in a bacteria, its sensory mechanisms, its action mechanisms are all based on, in many cases, individual molecules. Of course, there's chains of molecules, but we can identify each molecule in the chain and what each molecule does. So obviously there's no neurons in molecule minds. And as Sai pointed out, molecule minds think in terms of points in space or just single points. The second stage of minds are the neuron minds. Now here's what's so key is that each individual neuron is a self-contained molecule mind. The dynamics inside a neuron are the same mental dynamics we'd find in an archaea, bacteria, or protozoa. And this is important because this is what the journey of the mind reveals is that minds keep getting embedded inside of other minds. And this is how the development of thinking progressed. Neuron minds can think in terms of patterns. They're able to process patterns in the world. So basically, if you get a bunch of point processing molecule minds, hook them up into a network, you get a neuron mind that's capable of thinking of patterns. The third stage of minds are module minds. A module is a network of neurons. So when you have a network of neurons that come together and specialize for a specific function. For example, there's a visual recognition module. There's a visual navigation module. There's an audio recognition module. A module is just a network of neurons for a specific purpose. And once again, a module is a self-contained neuron mind. So a neuron is a self-contained molecule mind. A module is a self-contained neuron mind. A module mind is able to think about objects. So if you put together a bunch of pattern processing neuron minds, you get 
an object processing mind. Invertebrates, all invertebrate minds are neuron minds. All vertebrate minds, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, are module minds. So you did not hear me say humans because humans are in the final and fourth stage of thinking on Earth, the superminds. If okay, you put be, together- before we, get, before we get to stage four on superminds with humans and, and civilization and, and AI and beyond, let's talk about uh, the consciousness that emerges at, at the top stage of the module minds. And let's bring in um, your mentor, uh, Stephen Grossberg's, uh, because I know you you put a, a great deal of uh, of uh, uh, of your work on founded on his ideas and, and give him the credit for it and that that's great um, and he talks about three levels of consciousness that form this uh, unified theory of mind. Could you go through those three and and show how those articulate and integrate and become the consciousness uh, even before humans? So. We argue that consciousness emerged during this transition from the neuron minds, the invertebrates, to the module minds, the vertebrates. So in our thinking, the very first minds to become conscious were almost certainly fish, the, the very first vertebrates. So Stephen Grossberg, who is a neuroscientist at Boston University and who indeed his, his body of work uh, influenced us heavily, he has a unified mathematical framework that explains module minds, how module minds work. So the minds of mammals, reptiles, birds. He focused mostly on mammals and humans, but he came up with a mathematical framework developed over 65 years that integrates how all the different modules in the mind work together. Uh, his explanation, I think this is what you're getting at, has three levels. There's a mathematical level. There's a, the bottom level is equations that describe the activity of specific neurons, specific neuron to neuron interactions, module to module interactions. So he starts out with a set of mathematical equations. He also has uh, ex explanation of network configurations. So he explains how different collections of neurons, networks of neurons are wired together, the st physical structure of them that will lead to specific uh, behaviors, activities, outcomes. And his third level of explanation is the phenomenology, emergent properties, psychological properties, the inner experience. So he shows how the equations combined with network configurations give rise to very specific forms of emergent phenomenon, which some of which we experience as subjective phenomenon, such as consciousness. Okay, I mean, th this is this is a core. So let's, let's spend a little more time on this. Uh, he also has a, a, a different way of describing it, uh, in addition to the way you've described it, which is good. And th this is uh, that all conscious states are resonant states. Yes, I want to yes. understand what that means. That's the first point. Secondly, that all resident states uh, with feature-based representations can become conscious. So conscious. So it's very interesting the first and the second kind of flip each other around all conscious states are resident states but then when but not all resident states are conscious states because you have to have feature-based representation so i really like that articulation between one and two and then the final one was multiple multiple resident states can resonate together which amplifies the whole process so to me that that sounded like the core of, yes. of creating consciousness 
and and I thought we'd spend just a little time uh, sure. uh, um, kind of uh, teasing that apart and unpacking it. We call them Grossberg's three laws of consciousness because those three principles, we call them laws that you just articulated, are the core to understanding how consciousness actually works because it, it unites the subjective experience of consciousness with the underlying physical mechanisms. And as you pointed out, the first and most important law of consciousness is that all conscious states are consist of resonant dynamics. They're resonant states. They consist of a specific form of physical activity in a brain, and that physical activity is resonance. What is resonance? The easiest way to think about resonance is to imagine two musical instruments playing the same melody at the same time. So imagine a violin and a trumpet both playing jingle bells at the same time. What happens when two instruments play the same melody at the same time is it amplifies the sound, it gets louder, it prolongs it, the notes last a little longer in the air. And we can imagine two musicians playing it, their melody synchronizes with each other. They adjust to make sure they play the melody, they hit the notes at the same time. So this is what happens in resonant dynamics between two mental representations. Resonant dynamics always involves two mental representations that come together and if they resonate, they get amplified, they get prolonged, they get synchronized, and that resonant state is the physical embodiment of a conscious experience. Let me just say that again because it's so important. The resonant state, when two mental representations are physically resonating in a module in the brain, that is the embodiment of a conscious experience. Yeah, but, but I think I think you would say that that's necessary, but not sufficient, right? Not because sufficient. You, because you that's can right. have resonant states that are not conscious, obviously. Right. Just exactly right. And this is why this is such a useful tool is because Grossberg shows that there are resonant states in our brain that, that do not lead to conscious experience. A good example is uh, our navigation system has a head-centered system of space and it has an object-centered system of space. So our mind kind of maps things around us, around our mind, uh, around our head, and it also maps things around an object. So for example, here's a bottle, you know, our mind's also kind of mapping the space around the bottle. And this head-centered system and the object-centered system, they resonate, but they don't have features. What is a feature? A feature is just a property of a mental representation. It's easy to describe the features in a, say, a visual representation. It's things like color, texture, shape, size, you know, the, the, the board, the perimeter, all of these are visual features. There's no features involved in mapping, say, the head-centered representation of our environment to an object-centered representation of the environment. That's more like mapping one number to another number. So you need these mental representations to generate conscious experience need, uh, need features. If it has features and it's resonating, then it will become a conscious experience. Okay. And then, and then third... The, the, the third follows naturally uh, because then you would have these multiple resonant states coming together, which is the unified experience of consciousness, uh, verbal and uh, visual will all come together. We, we, we think it's a unified ex one experience, but it, it's these resonant states coming together. The, the, this is a very different notion of consciousness than what many researchers and scientists over the centuries have imagined, and even today, because you, once again, usually many researchers think Consciousness is one thing. It's produced in one part of the brain. Uh, Descartes was the first. He, he thought consciousness was produced in the pineal gland. Uh, more recently, uh, uh, Crick of Watson and Crick, he thought that the claustrum was the place that generated consciousness. But what 
Steven Grossberg has showed is that any module capable of resonant dynamics where the mental representations have features, that module is capable of generating its own conscious experience. So we have lots of structures in our brain, lots of modules in our brain that each produce their own unique form of consciousness. And as you pointed out, when di different resonant states are occurring in different parts of the brain, they can resonate together. That provides us with our seamless experience of consciousness. Because of course, we don't experience sound and vision as separate things walled off from each other. We experience them sort of at the same time as part of the overall gestalt of our experience. But physically what's happening is different resonant states in our brain are resonating together to produce that seamless, uh, multimodal, multi-sensory uh, conscious experience. So is resonance like quantum microtubules in that we have reduced consciousness and the magic of that to something that is possibly scary, uh, crazy if you don't understand it? No. So here's, here's what's interesting about resonance uh, and, and why they need to be features. As, as we go along this journey of increasing complexity of the mind, the kind of sensory data that comes in is no longer uh, completely unambiguous. It is ambiguous, it's chaotic. We have to make sense of that at every moment. And what we are doing, what consciousness allows us to do, what these resonant dynamics allow us to do is take in this chaotic, ambiguous sensory data. It's data, it's not information yet. And convert that into meaningful, usable information. So, so many metaphors about consciousness are, are wrong because they assume that the information comes in from the outside. No. It's sensory data, ambiguous, fundamentally ambiguous, confusing, chaotic sensory data coming in, being translated into information, usable information. And that is why it's so important because information is different for every mind. Let me make this very clear. So we have this in the book. The scent of the two cent stamp sent me back. A sentence where we have three homonyms, scent, uh, the perfume or the odor of a two cent stamp, which sent me back. So you, we are having a conscious experience right now and multiple conscious experiences. We have consciously heard a word, which is a homonym. So it's, we have consciously heard the same thing and we have consciously recognized three different meanings of this. And what's magical about this is that we have gone backwards in time. You did not hear three common meanings of this word and suddenly decided, oh, wait, let's scratch that out. Let's erase the blackboard. It's actually three different meanings. No, it happened as this ambiguous sensory data that came in, in one instance, in one magical instance where you're leaping back and forth in time was converted into a conscious experience. That is what resonance enables. It allows us to stabilize, prolong, and make sense, a uniquely to me sense of the sensory data that comes in. That, that's very interesting. And I think a very a unique combination, a, a, a contribution. Um, how does Grossberg's module mind articulate with Marvin Minsky's Society of Mind. Marvin, of course, who died a few years ago, was a great friend of uh, Closer to Truth and one of our early and continuing uh, supporters. So we have great fun, fondness for, for Marvin. How do those two articulate? I want to say I, Society of Mind is one of my favorite books. It's sort of one of the books that got me into studying the mind back when I was a teenager uh, that Minsky wrote, I think in, it was in the 1980s, but uh, a lovely book and, and always a big admirer of, of Minsky. And, you know, Minsky's fundamental approach to the mind, thinking of it as a society, as a collection of activities, as a collection of different, thing, different parts doing different things and all of them working together, 
fits very well with Steven Grossberg's approach. I, I would even say that basically Steven Grossberg put math to Minsky's ideas. Minsky's ideas were mostly metaphorical, conceptual, you know, that kind of ideas of principles. What Steven Grossberg did over his 65-year research career, and of course he's still still around, still doing research even today, uh, is put a mathematical underpinnings to all of that. In fact, Grossberg's put math to almost every part of the mind and cr crucially showed how all of this math works together. So he's got math that talks about the mind at the highest big picture level, but he also has math that tells you what each individual neuron, you know, how, how each individual neuron is operating. And that's, that's why his, his achievements so, uh, so marvelous. Yeah, I, I think society of mind is a great metaphorical con a construct. And we see this over and over again. There are many researchers and scientists and philosophers who come up with, I think, great metaphorical constructs. But they're in the, the language of English and analogies and metaphors. But you need the math to really come up with a theory, a theory which has explanatory and predictive power. And I think that's really where Stephen Grossberg's body of work stands apart. Did you see a differentiation in the relationship between his math and uh, the levels of which he's working because the mathematics of, of, of the neuron are very much predictable, but when you get to the mathematics, as you put of the, the module of the entire brain in some sense, that that is, is much, uh, I would say, much more challenging to, to see its legit legitimacy. Well, that's what that, that's Grossberg's big achievement is that he showed a rather small set of mathematical principles accounts for so many forms of mental dynamics, so many different forms of thinking that even though we have such different uh, modules, we, processing sound is very different from processing vision. Uh, navigating through an environment is a very different process than managing the muscles in your finger. And yet he showed that this wide diversity of forms of th thinking and forms of experience actually can all be explained by a rather small set of equations and a small set of principles. Uh, that's the real power of Grossberg's contribution. Sadly, the math, the, the math is really tricky and the math is really advanced and hard. <laughs> and uh, Grossberg's math, here's the, here's the number one thing about it. Grossberg's mathematics of the mind only explains the mind. It's not useful for anything else. It doesn't explain clouds or, or casinos or, or, or anything else. Many other researchers take math that was created for some other phenomenon, like studying gambling or studying clouds or other things, and then repurposes it to try to understand the brain. Grossberg's key step that he started off with back when he was 17 years old and did his first major contribution was recognizing the mathematics of the mind is probably going to be unique to the mind, that the mind is a unique physical entity in the universe and has its own principles and equations describing it. This is the same approach that Isaac Newton took so long ago when he first went to tackle motion. He said, you know what? Other people have, there was, there was always general theories about how motion worked that were based on mostly religious ideas. But he said, I'm going to figure out how motion works on its own terms. I'm going to figure out step by step through empirical investigation and through mathematical modeling, how motion works. And he ended up with Principia Mathematica, which was a mathematical framework for understanding motion. That's exactly what Grossberg did with the mind. He just built it up step by step. And the resulting body of math is not like it's differential equations, it's uh, dynamic systems. So the, 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 the mathematical framework itself 
is the same as dynamic systems, but the exact the specific equations, the specific uh, sets of systems of equations are unique to the mind. And of course, the, the fundamental assumption is that principles of the mind, as you've defined it, or consciousness, are uh, uh, susceptible to the same sort of analysis that physical motion would be. And do, does that mean that if you if you can make mathematical models of consciousness, which your which your claim is, does that imply a computational theory of mind? Because there are some Roger Penrose, others who say that that's that's impossible. We agree there cannot be a computational theory of mind. And here need some definitions. Most computational approaches draws upon uh, the mathematics of computer science, information theory, algorithm theory. These are forms of discrete mathematics. These are the mathematics of zeros and ones, the mathematics of integers. And no, the mind does not, the mind is not a set of zeros and ones. The mind does not operate like an algorithm. The mind is not, only metaphorically is the mind an information processing system. Technically, to apply, say, Shannon's information theory, to apply uh, Turing's computational theories, not appropriate for the mind because the mind is a dynamic system. It's an activity. It's constant change. It's constant motion. It's a lot more like Newton's theories of motion, as you pointed out, than theories of Turing's incompleteness, uh, Turing's uh, computational theories, uh, or Shannon's information theory, because the mind's discrete mathematics, the mathematics of computers and information, assumes that there are specific mental states that can be described specifically, and that there are fixed probabilities that connect these states. While the math may seem complicated, the reasons for this math are very simple. Minds are nonlinear non-local and non-stationary. And these, at the very outset, let us decide what sort of math can be used and whatnot. So I'll, I'll repeat that, non-linear, non-local, non-stationary. And the reason when is that say, the world- When you say non-linear non is clear, when you say non-local, what does that mean? It means that you, you cannot reduce the computation down to one neuron or one network, right? Everything is interconnected. The, 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 the mind, in the human mind, it's 86 billion neurons. Uh, there are multiple networks with right. thousands. But, of but it's all right, still, right. But, but it's all still it's in the, the skull. It's a another way of thinking. Non-local is it's holistic. It's holistic that something that's happening in this part of the mind affects something that's happening over here at, at the exact same time. You know, if it was local, then you could just figure out everything by just focusing on one specific region. There is one part which is not in the skull, which is the idea of embodied cognition, because the, the minds are actually using the environment. They're using the environment to even compute in many ways. Right. So especially when you look so at how does that articulate with the extended mind theories that we agree that the mind is not the mind is not just the neurons in the brain. We, the mind must incorporate the body, the whole body and the environment that you don't have a mind unless you have a body, a brain uh, and an environment. By brain, we just mean the physical. I would just emphasize that the way you're using mind in your definition um, in terms of activity, not something that's a, a thing, um, is important for people to continue to keep in, in their heads or in their, well, their way of thinking uh, in order to understand that statement that the mind is not just in the head, because you're defining mind in a very particular way, a kind of a very utilitarian way that that is the is the foundation for the, the the evolutionary tracing that you do to build up consciousness. So all that is 
very coherent. Uh, coherence is maybe the first test of of, uh, of uh, legitimacy, but it's not the only test. I, I'm going to have a lot of questions, but we still haven't gotten to stage four, the supermind. So let's give me the sense of, of superminds, humans and civilization and, and AI and beyond. Give me that overview, not too long. Then I'm going to get you to my questions. What are superminds? It's, it's quite simple. It is the mind that you and I are a part of. Now, what does that mean? So how is it that you and I can be a part of mind? Well, so as we show, so all minds are essentially made up of thinking elements that came before them. So neuron minds are essentially, neuron minds are essentially made up of neurons, which are uh, constellations of molecule minds. In the case of super minds, these are module minds that are brought together. So, and what connects these together? So again, something we go through, I'll go through this very quickly, is that at each stage, there's a form of connectivity that binds the minds of the previous stage together. In the case of superminds, what we have is language, a, new, a whole new dynamic that's completely unique to us. This, uh, this, this communicative capability that allows us to share feelings and, and thoughts and experiences with each other. That is what binds us together into what we call a supermind. Mm. And we see, oh, okay. as Sai said, we see similar new forms of connectivity at each of these transitions in the four right. stages. Right. So neuron minds, formed when individual molecule minds figured out how to communicate with each other and collaborate. And that formed neuron minds. Once networks of neurons figured out how to communicate with each other through mental representations, that was the form of connectivity that binds together module minds that produce module minds. And then, so language is simply another form of connectivity in these, this history of stages of connectivity. So every time the mind wants to ascend to a new stage of awareness, a new stage of intelligence, a new stage of dynamics that, that interact with the environment. It's always driven by a new form of connectivity and language was the form of connectivity that produced superminds by binding all of humans together into a single thinking unit, a supermind. So it is, I mean, that is a nice metaphor, but it is, the, is your claim that, that human civilization uh, actually has its own kind of consciousness that is a is a, a, a an analog to the same transition that you you have in your fifteen or eighteen different steps of building on it. it is the claim that civilization has its own independent sense of existence, a maybe a Gaia theory of earth, not of the Earth but of of human civilization? Is that the claim? So here's where we get the payoff, a big payoff from Grossberg's three laws of consciousness, his three mathematical laws of consciousness, and also this conception of a journey of ascending. Because superminds, we can ask the question, is a supermind conscious? How would we address that? Using Grossberg's three laws of consciousness. Is there resonance? Does the resonance, do the mental, do the representations that are resonating, do they have features? And then, are there multiple physical instances of resonance that can resonate together? If we have those three things, then we have consciousness. So we can look at a particular supermind. We can look at a city. We can look at a country, a, a modern nation state, and ask, do we see resonant dynamics? Do we see feature-based resonant dynamics? Do we see resonant states resonating with each other? And our contention is that certain modern nation states and perhaps cities that have 
most importantly, freedom of press with mass media, some kind of free economy, uh, some kind of capitalist system loosely, and free science, some acceptance and involvement with science. These three things lead to resonant dynamics at the supermind level. We'd argue, for example, America, we would say is indeed conscious. Where are the resonant dynamics? In our mass media. When we see a headline on the newspaper, when we see uh, on cable TV, uh, uh, a talking head talking about something, these are resonant states. Our media cartel, which is very analogous to the consciousness cartel in our own mind, produces resonant states. It's mental representations, a bottom-up input, a potential story from, from the world gets matched up with a newspaper editor or a TV show producer's conception of what a story should be. When these match, they go out as a headline, as a media story. And this all makes sense, but it's like a shared culture. We all have a shared culture experience. That's why nationalism and, and racial groups and different groups have, have a, a, a sense of, of, of coherence among each other. But you don't mean an independent, phenomenological sense of consciousness. You're using consciousness in a, in a, in a much different and broader term. Well, we would say, for example, you know, the United States is conscious of the war in Ukraine, that the country, this supermind, the American supermind yeah, is that's conscious a that's of a metaphor. The you war don't mean Ukraine. an independent phenomenological um, a, a, a sense of, of awareness that, that, that America has. That's, that's the equivalent of a, of a human to, to a, to a bird kind of sense. The, yeah, the, we, we do say they're the same. And it, it comes down to this. It comes down to a very simple question. Do you think mental dynamics are physical dynamics? Do you think thoughts are based in describable physical reality? If that's the case, then if we see, if we see the same physical dynamics that are operating in our brain, if we see them in another substrate out in the world and made of another substance, if it's the same dynamics, then we must conclude it's going to produce the same emergent behaviors. Uh, the great red spot on the great red spot on Jupiter has the same physical dynamics as a hurricane in the Atlantic. Sure. Both, we okay. can predict so how that, say, that same analogy. If if I spin it around and say that uh, uh, you know force you to say that America does not have an independent phenomenological consciousness, it does not. And and you're and you, you that's an assumption that I'm I'm forcing you to to accept. Would that invalidate Grossberg's three laws? Because you have the three laws, you should have phenomenological consciousness of some kind. And if you don't, does that invalidate the theory? Well, the question would be how we test it, right? So. All right, this would be no, but but I I agree. Yes, 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 yes. If 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 we see the same physical dynamics in America that we see in our brain, and there's not a phenomenological experience of consciousness, yes, that would be a hard hit against Grossberg theory. Yes, absolutely. we're not. I didn't understand what you're getting at. We're not going to be able to prove that, but I think to to admit that. Yes. Yes. Oh, definitely. It, it gives coherence to what you're saying. Yes. That, that, that's all. So that, that's and, very... And, and to be clear, for example, we, we would say we can identify non-conscious countries. Like we'd say authoritarian countries, such as Russia, are not conscious because we do not see resonant dynamics. It's basically the dynamics of an individual human brain, such as Putin, 
you know, I mean, that's deciding quite, what the country does. I mean, I have to say that strains credulity. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I cannot see how the the, the 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 dynamics of one country would have a phenomenological consciousness and another country couldn't. I mean, it's hard. It's well, hard enough can, to go to the you, first day. Can you agree that, say, a, a fruit fly is not conscious, but a human is? Uh, what? What's no, the no, no, no. That, that, that's a different. That that could be a but scale. You, I, you have different experiences and different. And, and, but it, but it comes down to the physical d- dynamics, right? Like what if if we're comfortable saying a bacteria is not conscious, but a human is. You know, the basis well, I, of that I, is I think, I different dynamics. Had, I, I follow your scale in, in terms of the levels of, of, of how we're defining what that experience is um, all, all, all the way up. And you def, you are more um, brave than most by taking a demarcation point with fish, uh, which most people would not do. And so I, I like I like when people do that, by the way, when when you're right out there and making making a, a claim, because that is even if you're wrong, it's a very deep probe and it's a it's an important thing to do. So I, I, I love this stuff. Even when I think it's wrong, I love it. I do want to acknowledge this. Yes, it sounds bonkers. It strains credulity. But that is the important part of this. We we I mean, the long history of humanity is us thinking that we are utterly unique and then being knocked down a peg each time. Right. Uh, the, the universe is not revolving around our home planet, right? And then we're not utterly unique. We happen to evolve out of other uh, organisms. Consciousness is just another form of mental dynamics. And what's worse for our hubris is that it's not necessarily even limited to biological uh, elements. It could be elsewhere. We certainly understand it's a, it's, it's a big, accepting this is a big hit to our place in the universe. We like to think of ourselves as the most important things of the universe, as the pinnacle, as the peak, as the universe revolving around us. So to hear that, you know what, there's already entities that are conscious and more intelligent than us. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a lot to swallow, but it really comes down to, do you think we're special in, in the universe, the most special <laughs> or not? You know, we can accept the, that, that we're not unique or we're not, not the goal of the universe, then it's a little easier to, to accept that uh, new forms of consciousness, you know, are, are destined to emerge. All right, let me throw out some questions I had as I was reading through your book, which I love doing. First thing that hit me was, could you tell the same story from a behaviorism point of view, strictly in terms of conditioning, stimulus response learning, without any internal awareness, sense, or feelings? Because it seemed to me that you can. I think we, we would definitely would need internal uh, symbols. As I said earlier, that uh, what's what consciousness is doing is converting the stream of sensory data into usable information, information that allows us to stitch the past, uh, the present and the future together. And that is necessarily internal in some ways. There must be ideas, there must be feelings that are internal. Uh, one example we have in the, in the book. So when a, a monkey is deciding between food that's available right here, right now in front of it, versus something that it thinks might exist somewhere else because it heard the rustle of birds and trees, right? So without understanding what's going on inside, without a model of, of, uh, of states, internal states, that, which, which are valued internal states, where the value changes depending on uh, you know, the, the level of hunger it has, you cannot explain the kind of decisions a monkey would make there. Right? Uh, if you're looking purely on the outside, it can be a puzzle. It can be a puzzle. What makes it decide at certain instances to go after the fig tree, which is far off in the distance, what makes it decide uh, at other times to pick the, the food that's right in front of it. 
So you do need those internal representations. Defining mind as a physical system that converts sensations into actions, which is your core definition, would seem, as you said, to suggest that a thermostat or even a logic gate could be a mind, but then you add the feature that it has to have some bodily benefit or something like that. Now, would that exclude uh, uh, artificial minds, artificial intelligence that does not have a body? Yes, yes. You got to be embodied to be a mind. That that's absolutely key to this. So, so you would you would say that based on your definition, <clears throat> there's no chance for artificial intelligence in a super supercomputer to ever be conscious as you've defined it. No, not not if it's a computer program. It has to be a physical bot. It has to have a physical embodiment that's interacting physically with the world. It ha- has to be mobile. So, if you put it into a mechanical robot or a truck or a car or a Tesla. A self-driving car is a perfect example. A self-driving car is a mind in art by our definition. Okay. We, we, we actually even think that it, that the only way to have a truly autonomous self-driving car is for it to be conscious. And you're using conscious in the, in the phenomenological, internal, independent sense? Yes, the conscious like, like a fish. We, 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 need, we need cars that have the consciousness level of a fish most likely to, to be fully autonomous. And, but but not have an independent desire to say I really want to turn left instead of right. Well, it would have desires. Yes, it it would have it would have desires. It, it wouldn't be self aware. It doesn't need to be self aware. So you know we mentioned that humans were aware of our own awareness. So a conscious vehicle would be more like a fish. It wouldn't be conscious of its consciousness, but it would have desires, conscious desires. And it would have conscious valuations of, of different. What, what does it take then to make that extra step from consciousness to self-consciousness, which your fish and your uh, self-driving car does not have, but which humans do have? You need a supermind with the dynamics of language. So this is another one of the key lessons from the journey of the mind is that how hierarchical the mind is. And a lot of people that try to understand the mind and particularly try to understand consciousness, ignore the hierarchical nature of the mind. But this is why it's so important is that by having layers of the mind and having these different layers interact, so we've got the molecules at the bottom, then neurons, each neuron is a self-contained molecule mind, then modules, each module is a self-contained neuron mind, and then finally supermind, each supermind, each supermind consists of lots of module minds linked together that there's dynamics operating between these levels as well as on these levels. So why is this relevant for self-awareness? Well, consciousness consists of these resonant dynamics that all vertebrate have, but humans developed the dynamics of language. We instinctively imagine that language sits within our own individual brain, but that's not true at all. Language dynamics are fundamentally the thinking dynamics of the supermind. So language dynamics are moving between our minds. That's how we're communicating with each other. It's how it binds us together. And here's the key. It is the interaction of the dynamics of language operating between minds and the dynamics of consciousness operating within our mind. It's the interaction of these two distinct forms of physical dynamics that produces self-awareness. This is what we think one of the big stumbling blocks why so many people have taken wrong turns with studying consciousness is they treat it as consciousness as this one thing, but self-awareness requires language. It requires a whole other level of dynamics operating between minds in order to generate our personal private experience of self-awareness. 
So your, your claim is that self-awareness cannot happen at all without language. So a, a human being brought up without language uh, would not have self-awareness. Yes. That, so that, that, will, that would be our claim. And, 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 and your claim is that multiple um, self-driving cars, even though they have their individual consciousness, even if they exchange information and they have their various languages that they're talking about uh, and they're exchanging information because they're all on the highway and they don't want to collide with each other. So they have all these language communications, but that still doesn't pass your self Awareness well, Robert, yeah, that, that, that is a very interesting question. Yeah, we haven't I, I thought about that. There. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's a cool idea, Robert. <laughs> so uh, we can again strip uh, down. And get out of, when we let them do that, they can get out of control. So be careful. Let's, okay. let's keep let's keep that our secret. Robert, I, that, that, if, if we're taking our, our, our theoretical framework to the limit, then yes, we, we'd say that there would be a possibility if we let self-driving cars all communicate with each other, develop their own method of communication, they might very well then become self-aware. So maybe we don't want that. This is the key there. I think that's a great point. Language enables joint attention. Without that joint attention, we we can have we we probably had super smart monkeys that looked inwards and said, hey, what is this? What is this feeling? What is this experience? But it could not have continued yeah, but, to think about that or retain that experience without something external asking or, or telling it to again, attend to that. The key question is, we, we agree that it's necessary, but is it sufficient? Yes. And I, I think your claim is that it is sufficient because that's what the three laws, the three principles. There, there should be some way to wire, to wire communication between self-driving cars. There should be some way. What The details would matter on, on how that communication was handled, um, but there should be, in principle, some way for self-driving cars to develop a method of communication that could lead to self self awareness. Yeah, that communication must very crucially enable joint attention. That is the important part. There's okay. there's specific things that jo the the communication would have to fulfill. But if it fulfilled those, then then yes. Not yeah, we're not I, saying I, any old communication will do it. I, it I love the coherence of what you're saying because that that is critical. Um, and if you some people think it might lead to a reduction out of serfdom, that that they that's their they can decide that, but you you have presented a coherent picture, uh, and I, I, I like that. So the implication is that AI could be conscious if it has some sort of a physical bottle embodiment, uh, but if it was just locked in a computer, it couldn't. So how do you deal with the question of like virtual immortality, <clears throat> which I've spent some time on? I think the question of AI consciousness and virtual immortality are are the same kind of question uh, in terms of the nature of consciousness, but per perhaps uh, for a different reason than, than you say. So what is your opinion? I think you're saying AI can be conscious as long as it has some sort of these bodily representations and these intercommunications that, that, uh, that, that create this uh, quasi-language. That is correct, yes. So, and, and what, what is interesting about virtual immortality is that it does not have to be in the same physical space that we are in. It has to be in a space. That is it. That space could be constructed anywhere else. It could be the metaverse. But as long as it's able to move around, has a clear definition of a, of a body and the environment it inhabits, and is able to adapt and learn from the environment with its sensory inputs, then yes, this it, it can lead to it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So then you really don't need a robotic bot, physical metal screws, 
together because you can you can embed that in a metaverse kind of, of way so, virtual reality and, and all all claims for virtual immortality have that type of a of a of an environment uh, an electronic uh, environment so so no so here here's here's something very crucial that for for a mind to have human like thinking to have consciousness to have self awareness to have conscious language the way we do, there has to be physical dynamics. Now, dynamics, as I said earlier, different from computer programs. You cannot achieve this with an algorithm made of zeros and ones. Zeros and ones will not produce consciousness. Zeros and ones, which is what a meta the metaverses are made of these days, that will never produce consciousness. You need fundamentally physical entities interacting in a dynamic way just like we have molecules, we have neurons. These are physical things. These cannot be converted into algorithms. They cannot be converted onto a computer program that you download onto your computer. That will not happen. That will not lead to self-driving cars. That will not lead to conscious AI. Conscious AI needs to be rethought from the ground up to involve physical dynamics. Rodney Brooks at MIT, he's a very much an embodiment guy. He His sort of stuff is much more in the direction of what needs to happen for conscious experience than deep learning. Deep learning uh, algorithms will never ever produce consciousness because their statistics and zeros and ones, they are, they're not using the right math. That's the, oh, that's okay. the bottom so, line, not so, using the right so math. Virtual immortality in its classic sense is you're saying impossible um, because it's just located in a, in, in, a, in a computer program, however sophisticated. Uh, and it doesn't have to be just zeros and ones there. You know, you can put analog, you can make it as complicated as you want. But, but you could have virtual immortality if you took the full download. You know, that seems pr technically pretty much impossible for a long time. But assuming you could, if you put that in another body or you put it in a, in, in a car or, or some physical em embodiment of that, then, then you could maintain your, 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 your independent consciousness. So it's physically possible. Grossberg's math gives us the blueprints for immortality, for transferring our consciousness to another system. But let's not understate how complicated and sophisticated that would be. What, what we say, it's like taking the entire city of New York on September 11, 2001, and recreating it, recreating all the skyscrapers, all the roads, all the taxis, all the pigeons, all the pigeon droppings, uh, all the graffiti, all of that reproducing the entire city of New York as it was on September 11th. That's what it will take to be able to transfer consciousness. What, what, we're, what we're envisioning is in, an in-principle conversation, yes. not the pra engineering practicality of making it happen. I, yes. I, I it agree. is possible so, in principle. It, it's clear. Right. It's, I, I want to add that. So, I mean, there are physicists who do believe that we, we are in a simulation that's possibly doing exactly that. It is, it is a simulation that has uh, simulated 9-11 in New York down to the, to the fluttering leaf and, and billowing dust. But uh, if that's possible, then yes, there is... In principle, we're all out of the edge of possibility already that there are computers where we can... Uh, I have a number of short questions now. We're almost out of time. I'd love to go on for weeks. Um, but a couple of, of questions which I want to um, articulate your theory with some of the other things that are going around in, in, the, in the world of consciousness. So quick answers to these questions. First of all, how, do, how does your approach to consciousness articulate 
with some of the the primary uh, um, uh, neuronal theories of consciousness, such as the global workspace theory, uh, integrated information theory that uh, Giulio Tononi has promoted. Th- those are two of the kind of the more popular ones. So a quick a quick articulation with those. So it's it's very much in line with global workspace theory, uh, but what what sets uh, consciousness uh, embodied by resonance apart? It's true embodiment. These are not simply neural correlates. Uh, to give you an example, so what is fame? Right? Is uh, is a number of Twitter followers? Is that is that fame? No, that's a correlate of fame. It's not really fame. The true embodiment of fame, for one to replicate that or to measure that, one would have to look at the minds of uh, billions of people around the planet to understand, okay, so is the, what is happening? Is there, are there memories of a person or a celebrity? In the same way, so uh, uh, the, these theories, global, higher order thought theory, global neuronal workspace theories, these are correlates and they, they, they are broadly in, in the same ballpark, but they're not specifying the exact dynamics of consciousness. They are setting out the parameters. We shared that li- line earlier, that uh, the scent of the two cent stamp sent me back. No theory out there can explain how consciousness, the, the conscious perception of hearing and recognition here unfolds. Uh, the, the, this theory based on uh, Steven, Steve Grossberg's body of work can. None of the others, they are heuristics in some sense, they are correlates, but they cannot come up with an explanation that tells you how the conscious uh, perception of, of something like that unfolds. I'm, I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think, I think each one could give an explanation. You know, it may not agree with it for, for that, for that example. Um, uh, I, 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 they, they can give a broad, broad explanation. What I mean is that the very specific unfolding of consciousness over time, because so many of these theories do not really take time into account. Integrated information theory, for instance, the, the, foundationally, it, it relies on the idea of information and quantifies this information. But I just just said, what is information? Information fundamentally is about states, but the mind for its very survival and to thrive for the welfare of the body must continuously make up new states. What does information even mean in that context? Grossberg's framework is far, far more sophisticated. And the reason is because it was built up out of, Grossberg did not tackle consciousness head on. He didn't try to develop a theory of consciousness. What he did was try to develop mathematical models for everything that's happening in the mind, for how vision works, how audio works, how olfaction works, how navigation works, how volition works. He's got mathematical models of everything in the mind. And when he put them all together, consciousness fell out. The math, it became possible to identify, oh, here's the mathematics in this vast system of math that's explaining consciousness. And here's the math that's explaining even though my doctor, even though my doctorate is many, many, many decades ago, I remember some of the mathematics of the visual system, Torsen and Weasel. You know, there was a lot going on, and that th- that's understandable. But then you very quickly at the end, and you say, and that's causing consciousness. I mean, that's a little bit of hand waving because there is. Oh no, there's there's no hand waving. Most people believe that there's something special about consciousness, and therefore, I want to ask you this broader question, because people who believe that there is something special about the phenomenology, the internal awareness of consciousness that sets it distinctly apart from everything else in terms of visual system operation, those who believe, and there's a lot of people who do that, 
there's a constellation of different explanations. And I think you would say, not to, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but you're going to check me if I'm right or wrong. You would say that all of, the, all of these mechanisms are meaningless. We don't need any of them. And I'll list them. The first is uh, a radical extension of common materialism, such as in panpsychism, where every particle or force has some proto-consciousness, uh, because you need that. Or if you go all the way that down deep, everything is consciousness because we have to explain it, which is idealism. Or some would say, maybe from a religious uh, um, conviction, that you need some kind of non-physical component, really non-physical, uh, to constitute the mind and consciousness, as in substance, substance dualism, uh, implications for souls or spirits or some kind of radically different uh, uh, non-physical realm of the human mind. You would say all of those are unnecessary. Is that right? That's right. I mean, consciousness is amazing. It's singular. It, it, it's spiritual. Uh, you know, it, it, it is all of these things. It is magical, enchanted. Any word that oh, you want to throw, you're, you're it, it is all words. that. You're using those words in a fluffy way. That That's not fair. I mean, you're saying it's like, you know, letting the person believe what they want to believe, even though it's false. No, 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 no. So, so here's a good metaphor. Gravity. What is gravity? It's a force. But if you really delve into the mathematics and the physical principles of gravity, you get Einstein's theory of relativity which involves space, it involves time, it involves motion. To understand gravity, it turns out you need to understand a lot of things and it's deeply mathematical. It's conceptually hard to get our minds around. But if you wanna understand gravity, you've gotta sure. do the work on the math and the physical concepts. That's what right. consciousness is like. Grossberg's framework for consciousness is very, very complicated. The math is even harder than Einstein's theory of relativity. There's so many equations, there's so many moving parts. It's not easy to grasp. Consciousness, it took 3 billion years to build. It's not something simple. It's not something easy. It's not some switch that got flipped. Granted, it got let me go back to my original point. We've explored that. You, you would think that, you know, uh, explanations for consciousness requiring panpsychism or idealism or substance dualism or souls or spirits or anything non-physical is all unnecessary. You don't need any of that. You, 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 get the ma you can get the magic without bringing in magic. That's what we're saying. Okay. <laughs> you, okay. you, can build, you can build something magical in this universe. It's possible to build something. It just takes 3 billion years. <laughs> okay. Usually, the, the, the reason, uh, even without going into the, uh, the details of any explanation, the reason why most explanations of consciousness are so emotionally dissatisfying, unsatisfying, is because they, they're shifting the magic and the, uh, the, the, the magic of this conscious, conscious this explanation to something else. But what we never explore is when we're talking about the magical experience of experience, what, we, what is unquestioned is who is the experiencer? So the, any, any explanation that looks elsewhere is simply shifting the burden. So we, we might come up with a, a, a reductionist or a neural explanation of consciousness, but have we left out the self? And that's what we're bringing in here. What we're saying is that the, the self and the experience of consciousness are inextricably tied together. So I do want to add one definition of consciousness here. So having to tie this all together. So the, the subjective magical experience of experience is great, but it's too subjective. So here's a, here, here's a, a definition. It is the emergent totality of experiences from the past 
experiencing the present and preparing for future experiences that might hold rare risks or outstanding yeah. opportunities. And that's, that's, a, that's a nice definition, but it, it does not explain a phenomenological experience emerging from physical from the physical world, which each of the, the, the examples I gave, panpsychism, idealism, substance dualism, souls and spirits, all of that, those claim to be able to, to bridge that gap between the phenomenological experience and the physical experience. And, and you're saying that you don't need to do that. Your definition is a good definition, but it is not a working model for how that happens. No, that's not right. I, it, it's you're confusing your your example is a perfect example of mixing up things with activity. Like your those approaches, panpsychism, these sorts of things are looking for the thing. It's consciousness as a right, thing right, that's right, out right. there, and so it's you're not. Denying, it's, you're you're denying that. Yes, yes, it's activity. It, it, it's like looking. But, it's but like, the, like so looking for Elan Vital or or the e, the luminiferous ether or activity. Is no different than a physical activity. That's right. If it's so, an activity, so, so. it's an activity. That's right. Mental activity okay. is physical activity. That is okay. that is our core okay. argument. Uh, for, I, our core you know, I, as I said, I love the coherence, even though I may not agree with every conclusion you're making. But I love the coherence and, and the story that you tell. It's really a wonderful one. Last question is: You talk about clues about the ultimate fate of minds, as you defined it in the universe. So. Give me a hint of what that ultimate fate is all about. Well, the logical conclusion. So, so this wasn't our preconception. This is after we did the research, retraced the journey of the mind. The logical conclusion, if what we're saying is correct, following these four stages of thinking, each stage, uh, each transition between stage happening when there's a new form of connectivity binding the minds of the previous stage is there's no limit to this. There's no ceiling on this. There's no reason why this just won't keep continuing. In fact, you know, we suggest that right now we're seeing the very earliest hints that maybe the superminds are starting to figure out how to connect. What's the new form of connectivity? Perhaps the internet. Perhaps the internet's allowing nation states, superminds to figure out how to communicate with each other. That's speculative. We're not going to argue that's definitely the case. But certainly, if you take the journey of the mind, it naturally and logically leads to that conclusion. But that suggests there, this can keep on going. We'll build hyperminds, perhaps, when superminds come together to form a new mind. And then maybe a new hyperminds will come together to form a new mind after that. Each new stage of thinking, each new stage of mind uh, is able to adapt to a broader scope of reality, to a broader scope of chaos. Each of these transitions is a quantum leap, a, a giant leap forward in terms of the scale of reality the mind can handle. So there's no reason, no obvious reason why this should stop. We might eventually produce beings so intelligent, so aware, uh, and perhaps hopefully so compassionate that they could be considered gods by individual human brains. Uh, uh, the uh, the, the uh, interesting uh, thing uh, is these are gods that we are creating. These aren't gods that are coming in from outside or that are imminent. We, perhaps the purpose of our lives, according to the journey of the mind, is to create ever better minds, minds that are smarter, more compassionate, more resilient. And there's no reason why this should ever end. If, if this would be true, if your vision is, uh, is an accurate one and your foresight, um, was that something that was built into the universe in, in some primordial sense? Or is it just the brute fact of 
what has happened through the, the random selection of evolution. This is obviously as speculative as it, as it gets. So let me, <laughs> no confidence and no evidence to, su- to support this, but it sure does seem like that if you're going to have a physical universe, that you're going to have minds because the way minds came out of chaos does seem inevitable. And because it seems like there's no limit to minds being able to to overcome chaos, at least we've gotten through 3 billion years of it so far and keep rising, keep ascending, that it does seem that if you're going to have a universe at all that follows laws, that follows physical laws, that that you're going to get minds and the minds will keep on going. So it does seem to be something fundamental about, about reality that maybe if you have stuff that you're going to get minds. This is something that, that I find very, very hard to digest and believe. So if you take a purposeless universe where thermodynamically open systems have to somehow maintain their complexity, that is you and I, we need food, we need sustenance, eventually that has to give rise to purpose. It, it just seems like purpose has to come out of purposelessness when there are certain constraints. Well, I think we need another data point, and I would pick about a thousand years from now uh, to test your theory. So the three of us will be back. Uh, we'll make a date, and we'll 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 see where we are. That sounds great. We'll be there <laughs> in some form or shape. In some form. I, I, I really really enjoyed it. So we'll look forward to the next time. It was a fun time, Robert. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, fantastic talk. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.